Hi, everyone. This is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. It's a new year, and we've got a brand new lineup of IO-focused conversations in store for you all in 2019. I'm very excited to welcome our 10th guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Talia Bauer, current SIOP President and Professor at Portland State University. Before we begin today's conversation, I want to thank our listeners for submitting the questions we'll be covering with Talia in advance of this broadcast. Lastly, a reminder that all episodes of the SIAP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the SIAP Conversation series landing page. Now I have the pleasure to welcome and introduce Dr. Talia Bauer, who is our current SIAP president and Cameron Professor of Management in the School of Business at Portland State University. Talia's work focuses on topics such as recruitment, selection, analytics, onboarding, and leadership. She has been awarded grants from the NSF, NIH, SHRM Foundation, and SIOP Foundation. She has been a visiting scholar in France, Spain, the UK, and at Google headquarters. Talia has received many distinguished awards for her scholarship and teaching, she serves an, as an associate editor for the Journal of Applied Psychology and is the former editor of Journal of Management. Her work has been featured by Business Week, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, USA Today, and NPR's All Things Considered. She is a fellow of SIOP, the American Psychological Association, and the Association of Psychological Science. Talia, thank you so much for being with us today. Ellie, thanks for having me. Talia, to begin, can you tell us about your path to I.O. and academia? Yeah, I mean, I, I, seeing this question, I reflected on that, and, and really it was, um, I think, in some ways a traditional path in terms of sitting in high school, thinking, what do I want to be when I grow up, taking a vocational inventory, um, and it was really clear that I had um, interests and uh, passions that aligned with psychology. And so it was really clear based on that information that I would need to get a graduate degree and I'd need to really spend time understanding and investing in my stat skills. So that was true even in high school, but I didn't know what that was going to look like in the end. And, you know, I went and I got my undergrad in psychology and it was just by accident that someone mentioned uh, IO psychology. And have you ever heard of that when they heard the things I was interested in? And that was very different than the research that I'd done as an undergrad, which was really helping um, with qualitative interviews and people who had helped out um, people during the Holocaust in terms of um, survivors and people, it was called the Altruistic Personality Project. So very different than the work I'd done, but when I talked to people about the applied nature of my interests, IO came up. And so I thought that was my own story. And we did, uh, some colleagues and I, a few years ago, we did some interviews with 12 people in all walks of life in I.O. So SIOP members, um, you know, who were relatively new, who were, had been SIOP presidents, uh, who were in industry, who were master's level. So 12 very different walks of life of I.O. And as we interviewed them and asked them this question, it was a little bit eerie how much everyone said, by accident, someone mentioned this to me. And so that really actually stuck with me. And as I thought about some of the things I wanted to do as SIOP president, uh, one of the things I had a passion for was making sure that it wasn't just an accident. You know, we're one of the fastest growing um, fields without that, but also I think long-term foundationally, we want the best and brightest to know about us, find out about us. And that really starts at high school. 
Um, so getting into the into the textbooks of, of general IO, uh, I mean general psychology. Um, as a lot of people know, we've done inventories and we're in some, but surely not very many. And it's not something that people are exposed to regularly. So it's not an easy problem. It's a big problem. And I sat down and I talked to Joe Allen about it, and he agreed to lead the charge on this task force. And they've done amazing work. They have a five to six prong attack, some short term things, some long term things, um, and really talking to publishers, doing inventories, getting the word out in high schools, having people go in and talk to uh, high school students. So I, I guess I'm grateful that by accident I found out about IO, but I also wish um, that everybody had that opportunity to decide if that's right for them. And then I went to San Francisco State's um, IO master's program and, and then from there to Purdue University. So that's kind of the background of how I got to be here. Fantastic. And uh, your resume is quite extensive and filled with a variety of different experiences. What what experience do you think has had the biggest impact on your career? And in reflecting in this, I thought, you know, it's kind of like picking your favorite child. I don't know that there's one that's had the biggest impact. I think the obvious answer is um, where you go to school shapes you so much in terms of your thinking, um, what you're exposed to, the faculty, your cohort. So, you know, by far, if I think about my DNA as an IO psychologist, it's definitely where you go to school and, and those experiences that you have. But there's also a lot of commonalities there. Um, but I think maybe a better answer is to, is to change the question a bit and say kind of what behaviors um, lead to to being able to have a lot of experiences and to, to really get um, positive outcomes from those. And so I came up with three things that I think um, kind of universally in academia and practice and the experience of I've had have served me well. And one is the learning orientation, just kind of what can I get out of this experience when I'm talking to people. Um, yes, I had that conversation by accident, but I also sought people out to talk about psychology. Um, so I kind of created some of those accidents. I have a passion for reading. Uh, my mom's a librarian, so I'm a, a child of books. Um, and I think that serves you well, not even just when you're reading IO Psychology. If I'm reading um, a novel and it's set in India and I don't have a lot of experience in 1800s India, um, it just gives me a different perspective that I, you know, I, I can't necessarily have all those experiences myself, but I can live vicariously and I can learn a lot from other people's successes and mistakes. Um, and then also a willingness to be new and be different. I think um, sometimes we don't want to put ourselves in those uncomfortable positions. Um, and I just kind of dive in and think, well, the worst thing is it won't won't go well or they won't like me or um, but really, um, as long as you're being safe in the world, um, not too much bad stuff happens from putting yourself out there and being new. And I, somebody was interviewing me about my research topics and was asking why I like onboarding so much um, and why I've been gravitated towards that topic. And I think this is part of it. Um, this idea that being new is exciting. Um, there's so much that can be learned. Proactivity is so rewarding during the onboarding process um, that it's kind of a natural. So I guess I've had lots of things that I can point to that were wonderful in my career uh, exposure that I've had to different activities and people and experiences, but all of them kind of build upon each other to make a mosaic that I'm really uh, been pleased that I've been able to have. And some of your research has looked at the topic of candidate experience. What are the top one to two ways organizations can enhance the candidate experience? Yeah, this is, um, I, when I think about my research, I think of candidate experience as being kind of 
classic um, PSYOP topic. It's very theoretical and then very um, rigorously researched, but also very practical. And I can remember the first time um, I had a paper at PSYOP at the conference, I think it was in the early 90s on this topic, um, and being so excited that, you know, that somebody from the FBI was stopping by to use my work and somebody from Wendy's and, you know, these big organizations where we're going to have impact um, by thinking about it. But it's, it's also not a very complex topic in some ways. I mean, some of it is just being thoughtful, empathetic, not being rude to people, right? So on the practical side, it's kind of amazing that more organizations didn't embrace this and do this naturally, um, but, they, but they really haven't. It's a different mindset of thinking about people you know, kind of as a number or as to be processed or we just want what we want and we're not so worried about your feelings. Um, and a lot of organizations that approached me to do research, it was things like we're going from a public utility to a private utility, and so these people are customers. You know, so customer um, focus has driven some of this. But I guess I think the key point of why organizations should care about this is because the best talent always has choices. So if the labor market is loose or it's tight, the very best people uh, have options. And if you treat them better, we found that they're going to be more for you as a viable and attractive employer. So the two things that I think that organizations can really focus on um, to get the biggest bang for their buck would be, um, first of all, explanations, explaining what and why. And I mean, this doesn't mean exposing yourself to uh, opening yourself up to legal problems, but it, it does mean that, you know, kind of understanding the basic research that says that when people hear explanations, they tend to be feel more respected and, and more willing um, to put up with the outcomes. So that's one. I think explanations is something that organizations can spend a lot more time on um, building those into the process. Uh, then the other one that I've been most attracted to lately is one of privacy and privacy concerns. So this has always been in the model um, since Gilliland first came up with it in the 90s, but I think it's changed as we've gone to so much technology and online as a society. And here's a, an example where I really see some societal differences. Some things are the same. So, you know, I think people like explanations and to understand what's happening kind of universally. But for privacy, I think privacy, I think the U.S. we're really grappling with the, the issue and the implications of that. Um, and we haven't done a great job of protecting people, consumers, applicants. Um, so I have some work looking at this that was um, funded by the National Science Foundation. And it's very interesting working in a team um, with individuals kind of with I.O. backgrounds and then computer science backgrounds and those differences about just because you can do something, should you do something? And those those soft ethical issues really show up there. But in Europe, I think they've done a better job. I think um, there's more privacy, more respect, more um, of the legal protections there. But I, this question caused me to think about uh, a workshop I was doing for a group of um, Chinese bank trainees. And so they'd come and they were doing a program and I was asked to come in and talk about this research. And we were going along and everything made sense to them. And when I started talking about privacy concerns, they, you know, somebody raised their hand and said, I don't understand what you're talking about. And I said, well, you know, like when you put your, you know, so you don't have to talk about your marital status or how old you are. And they just were all looking at me. And it came very apparent that to them, they didn't see that as a violation of privacy. And in fact, that's on the resumes, that's standard practice. Um, so I think privacy is very culturally driven, how much people are willing um, to, to see that versus um, to enforce privacy concerns. But it's something, regardless of the culture, that it really pays off for organizations to think about. 
maybe not in the day-to-day, but in the long run, if someone has privacy concerns, it is very salient and can be a huge turnoff. I'm I'm also curious around the candidate experience. I would imagine you've had some organizations that have struggled to figure out how do we create the most impressive candidate experience with how do we create the most honest candidate experience or realistic job review uh, that may not lead to more yeses but will lead to better fits. How do you help them find a balance between those two things? Yeah, that's a great question, Kelly. I think you've hit it. It's the balance, right? It's it's a tightrope walk because when you first say to an organization, well, you know, you actually want to make sure you talk about the negative so people self-select. You're like, why, why, why would we want that? Um, and we've seen the research and we know why you'd want to do that. Um, but I think it's being as authentic as possible. Other areas of my research are kind of recruitment and onboarding and that intersection between the two. And so I find the biggest advice I give organizations is to try and make those more seamless, get those groups talking to each other. The way recruitment in large organizations at least is set up, you have very different people with very different job descriptions. Uh, And so you have applicants who get very familiar, comfortable, hear about the job and the organization from that individual. And then they're just kind of thrown over the wall as they become newcomers to a whole new set of people and a different reality. And the bigger the organization is, the more you get subcultures and you get different policies and procedures. And so it's aligning those. And when those are aligned well, I think um, everything goes better in terms of the recruitment and the onboarding process. So maybe changing incentives. So instead of recruiters being uh, rewarded for getting people to take the job, you know, tying that to it and how long they stay afterwards, having them be involved in catch points during the onboarding. I think there's a lot of opportunities there um, that organizations are just now starting to explore. And Talia, so we've talked about some of your candidate experience um, research. Let's talk about some of your leadership research. There have been a lot of societal changes over the last couple of decades. As times change, are you seeing shifts in what are considered desirable leader characteristics? And if so, could you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, this this is probably the most challenging of the questions because when I thought about it, I thought, you know, leadership has been and continues to be such a unique concept. So um, you don't really have leadership without followers. And so it's really, as people are looking at what they define as leadership, um, and what, what I've seen is as the environment gets more complex, more challenging, um, it's really become clear that there's no one size fits all, that leadership is really inherently situational. And so in my onboarding work, it's become um, really salient because you have people who are in organization A and they're incredibly effective. They have a set of, you know, behaviors, traits, relationships, and approaches, and that makes them incredibly successful. So organization B wants to hire them. And yet when they walk into that second organization, some of those very skills and behaviors that they enacted successfully in organization A are really their downfall or problems or derailers in organization B because situational characteristics are so important. And so when I work with people in terms of onboarding and and kind of those leadership transitions, it's really about learning to kind of diagnose and test the water and and not assume that what you did there is going to be very successful everywhere. So I I think this idea that there are universal skills um, isn't necessarily uh, accurate, and people are becoming more and more aware of that. 
but that's hard, right? Because you're hired, they want you to hit the ground running, they want you to, you know, deliver on a lot of things quickly, and yet sitting back a little, asking questions, absorbing what's going on in the culture of that other organization is really critical. And so um, I think leadership will continue to be more and more important. I study traditionally um, leader member exchange, so at the dyadic level. So I really think of what I study as relationships at work. At work. You know, that's very different than leadership at a transformational level, um, which is an area that I haven't spent a lot of time on. Um, so that's important, but that's, that's not what I think about leadership in from a research perspective. So again, I think lots of differences, but what I'm excited about is how much this opens up. If there's different situations and different ways to be a leader, all of a sudden, anyone can be a leader. Um, from the bottom of the organization to the top, no matter what they look like, how old they are, um, there's opportunities for everyone. And I don't think that's a universally accepted concept, um, but I think it's more so now than it's ever been. Sounds like context and situational awareness are are key. I'm sure they always have been, but it sounds like you're describing a, a scenario where those those characteristics, those habits, those traits are more and more important. Absolutely, yeah. And um, tell you, so although we are making strides toward equal employment as a society, female IO psychologists may feel, still feel like a minority, especially when interacting with businesses that at the executive level primarily consist of men. What advice do you have for women who are interested in pursuing IO or leadership in business? Yeah, great question and really timely. I clearly don't have all the answers. Um, you know, I don't think anyone does or, 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 you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation still. Um, but I do have some thoughts and I, I think one, um, and these are my personal approaches, so I'm sharing those. I don't know that they'll work for everyone. Again, it's not one size fits all. But the first thing I try and do is I don't assume that someone is a jerk due to bias. I mean, I really think there are lots of jerks in the world and sometimes people are just jerks. Um, so that's, something that helps me not take things personally when people say rude things or they are rude or, um, you know, I, pretty soon, you know, women are going to take over things like that. Like, well, yeah, bias is real. I'm not saying it's not, but sometimes people are just jerks because they're jerks. And so I, I take that with it, you know, in the back of my mind as I'm going through um, my day. I also don't worry about everyone liking me. Um, I kind of focus on respect and being respected by those who I respect. Um, so I kind of think back to the leadership question, if you're doing things, if you're getting things done, and probably not everyone is going to agree with what you're doing because you're taking a stand uh, and you're moving in a direction that might make someone nervous or they might not like or they might feel threatened by. So I really try and think about really focusing on where I want to make a difference, and do the people who are in line with that respect what I'm doing? And if that's the case, then I don't worry so much about, you know, popularity per se. And then also back to, you know, the putting yourself in unique situations and, and being new, I think you also there's a tendency for people to hold back maybe and not put themselves out there waiting for the perfect fit. And there is some research that say, um, you know, on the whole at the mean gross mean level, that women do this more than men. Um, and so I, I think I, you know, encourage myself and others to say, hey, put yourself out there. Again, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Um, and when you do that, not that you're going to solve, this is not, 
these recommendations are not about um, changing the system, about solving that. I think as people get higher up in the system, they have opportunities to do that. But this is about how do you make your way through the world knowing that there is bias. Um, and then I think people who are in opportunities to make a difference, um, it's about not worrying about kind of shaking things up and that some people might not be feel comfortable. Kind of going back to that not everyone has to like what you're doing. If you're doing it for the right reasons and in a respectful way, um, then that's probably a good track to be on. So control your controllables, encourage courage uh, are some of the themes that I'm hearing you say. Get comfortable being uncomfortable resonates with some of the, the themes we've heard from some of our other guests over the past couple of years. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and then also social support, right? So getting people who you can talk to about when that jerk is a jerk and probably was, you know, maybe that that was a horrible situation um, and maybe that they were very biased. Um, you know, to be able to vent safely in a social support group, I think, is also really healthy. Um, but don't let that jerk control what you do so that you don't put yourself out there because you don't want to be exposed to them. Um, you know, I don't like the jerks to win. The, uh, the topic of te technology has come up in virtually all of our conversations since we've started the series, and we had a lot of questions for you about technology as well. There seems to be a growing intersection between IO psychology and rapidly advancing technologies. Talia, what do you see as some of the promises and pitfalls of this, uh, of this trend? Yeah, I mean, it's exciting because it gives us an opportunity to be more strategic um, and less about just processing. And so that's great. Um, and, you know, the difference between how quickly we can do things, what's possible is exciting. I do worry that IO will cede this space to engineers and computer scientists. And the, the fear there is that they don't necessarily, they're not steeped in um, what we know about IO basics and legal and ethical issues. So when we think about core IO topics like measurement, talent acquisition, development, retention, um, I, I think, you know, if you have, if you don't have an IO or HR professionals or people who know about these things at the table, uh, and we have, we kind of let the engineers and the computer scientists do it, um, what I've seen up close and personal is that doesn't often end well, um, for, for the users and for, you know, the environment. So I think that it has the possibility to really lead to a lot more regulation, a lot more problems, um, that are being solved that could have been avoided. And the way I think about this, you know, what's the ideal state then? It's not that, um, you know, that only IOs are allowed to be in this space. It, I think what are, where I've seen organizations be successful is when we have teams. So when we have those engineers and computer scientists and IOs and, you know, people with MBAs, different aspects of um, trying to get talent acquisition figured out, that's when you start to really have good conversations and come up with solutions um, that are robust and avoid a lot of those pitfalls. So I think it's real. I think we should be vigilant, um, and I don't think we should see the space. So I think as much as PSYOP and the leadership can tackle this, the better. And uh, I think there's some things in the work that I'm pretty excited about. That's great. So IO taking the lead on pulling together interdisciplinary teams to really make sure that we're thoughtful and rigorous about how we proceed in this space. Yeah, I, I, and I don't even think we have to take the lead. I think we can follow as well. I think there's opportunities for both. Um, and I think this is true in terms of research teams, um, getting funding um, at grant agencies, and then in practice. Well, you know, I've kind of seen good examples of this across all the ways. So as we know, when you're working with people on a team who are different from you, they were trained differently, they have different language, um, 
it can it can be challenging. So I have this example that it sounds ridiculous, but I lived it. That um, we were working on the National Science Foundation um, grant, and we were looking at online privacy in a selection context. And so this computer scientist that I'd worked with for a long time in other contexts on committees and such, um, you know, I knew he'd be a great partner. He he knows a lot about cybersecurity. Had had other grants. So we're working together. We're probably at our third meeting, fourth meeting maybe. So a month into this project, um, and he kind of stops us and says, you know, you keep saying I.O., but I think you mean something differently than we mean it in computer science. So hmm. we mean I.O., industrial organizational. They mean I.O., input-output. So very <laughs> different but core concepts in both of those fields. It sounds ridiculous, but it makes, you know, as soon as he said it, like, oh, of course, that's a very different topic. But until he felt safe enough to raise his hand and say, what are you guys talking about? Um, you know, it, we weren't talking each other's language, literally. So I think there's these kinds of just eye-opening experiences in terms of the, the technical. And what I, why I think we're, it's so important that we're involved in these conversations is my takeaway from all of those interactions and, and workshops and other people's research, it's this, this mantra that they have in computer science where in, in cybersecurity, it always kind of comes down to humans. Right, so you can build the most amazing um, technical solutions, but if someone writes their password and you know puts it next to the desk on a Post-it, you've compromised the security of that system. And so, so much of the training and the work to be done and the design of the systems um, really is something that IOs can help with. And I, luckily, we have a lot of IOs who are working in the space and and doing some pretty exciting things. But there's a lot of room for us. That's great to hear. So, Talia, we've talked about your research. We've talked about your work with organizations. I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about your teaching. You've been recognized many times over for your outstanding teaching. What are you most passionate about when it comes to teaching, and what are some of your favorite teaching strategies? Yeah, I mean, I love teaching. It's a you know a huge part of um, why I got into this business. In fact, I was a reluctant researcher. Uh, you know, I kind of knew I had to get the PhD to get the job teaching, um, and I had this great conversation with a faculty member um, when I was at Purdue, and I said, you know, it seems like when you're doing, um, you know, research, you're taking away from your teaching, and, um, you know, you know, is that kind of, in, in essence, taking away from the students? And, you know, she kind of looked at me, said, oh, you're so naive, um, and <laughs> said, said this kind of long-term thing, which is over the years, if you think about it, you're not teaching necessarily radically new concepts. So it's new to them. You want to keep your enthusiasm and be excited for them. Um, but for you, it's, you know, the umpteenth time you've taught about this topic. And the research and stimulating your mind and advancing knowledge and really kind of having thorny big problems that you're working on is what can help keep your enthusiasm and energy up to have something to give back to teaching. So it's almost like a way to renew. And obviously, we could push that too far and there aren't enough hours in the week. But that's been something that I've thought about, that it's not an either-or. I'm really passionate and love research, and I'm passionate and I love teaching. Um, and I, I, I talk to my students, even my undergrads, um, you know, in kind of core, basic intro courses about research. And I talk about how studies were done, and I, um, you know, talk about how things have transitioned over time. And they have great ideas. They, um, you know, they don't have this, the depth of knowledge that that other people who are researching these topics, but I've gotten research ideas from those conversations. And so for one thing, I don't pretend like research doesn't matter or doesn't exist in the world. 
I spend a lot of my teaching approach translating research and coming up with evidence-based practice, um, communicating frameworks and concepts. And my goal in an intro class is really to get them literate, you know, so that they understand, um, you know, if A is true and B is true, maybe C is a good way to approach this. Um, and I'm trying to actually, and I talk to them about this language, to have working hypotheses. So based on what they know now from the research, from the reading, from our discussions, from cases, um, you know, here's another situation. How might you approach it and why? And how might you rule out, you know, which direction to go in? And what makes most sense and why? So that you're increasing your odds of success. Um, and so I, I think that the way you do that is to really, first of all, read and understand the material and the background. Um, and But then really do something with it. And so my approach is um, pretty consistent. I do what I call lecturettes. And so I'll have about 20 minutes where I talk about those frameworks, concepts, um, definitions, evidence-based practice. Um, and, you know, that's really, um, you know, I'll have a little bit of discussion in there, but mainly I'm talking at them. I've got information and knowledge, and I'm trying to get them to think about it and to put that into um, their worldview. And then very quickly, though, I ask them to do something with it. And so it might be um, a small group discussion. They might be designing something. They might be asked to teach us about something. Something to get them talking, moving, thinking, doing instead of sitting there. Um, so if I have a two-hour class, I might do that two or three cycles. And I really try and get them engaged. And, you know, it's the Goldilocks. This isn't true uh, if you keep going forever. But I found the less I did and the more I asked of them, the more they learned and the more they liked it. So there's this engagement right there in the middle that if you can find that um, really changes it from being, oh, we have to learn all these concepts, this is so boring, to, oh, I see, this is giving me the language to be able to talk about what happens at work every day. Um, so I, I'm pretty agnostic about how I do that. I try and take as many different tools as possible. Um, I've also spent a lot of time, uh, part of it, um, part of my attraction to Portland State University when I first came here um, was it's kind of leadership in the community-based learning um, space. And so really, I'll, in the higher level courses, so now we have students who are maybe taking a training class. Um, I'll have them, yes, we want to learn about it, we want to go through, we want to do the research, I'm going to test you on that early on in the term. But along the way, you've been doing a needs assessment, you've been designing a program, and then you give the program and evaluate it um, to our organization of people in need. Um, so obviously, being in, in this space, maybe it's um, looking at um, uh, employment readiness for homeless individuals. And this, again, puts the students out of maybe their comfort zone. So they really have to diagnose what the issue is. So they want to talk to them about interview skills, but really the problem is people don't have IDs and they don't have a mailing address. And that's a critical part of trying to get a job and have people contact you. And so it's just an experience that helps them learn the material, but also uh, helps them really kind of think about problem diagnosis because the problem's going to change, right, over their careers. But this approach to the concept and this idea that, you know, you read, you find out what's working in general, and then you kind of work that out in the real world, um, I think that's something we do a disservice when we don't put students through the paces uh, every time we can get them to. Um, so we, I don't like to give up the, yep, you got to know the vocabulary. But to me, that's step one. And it's not an, an, the means to the end. It's not the ends to the means. Um, we're not just trying to get them to learn the vocabulary so that they can do well on that multiple choice test. 
I'm trying to get them to learn the vocabulary so they have fluency, uh, they have literacy, and they can really work with these concepts. I have this kind of paradigm I talk to students about in the first day of class often, and um, it's this paradox where I've had students say that this is the easiest class they've ever taken in their life, and I have students who say this is the hardest class they've ever taken in their life, and how can those both be true when they're taking the same class? Uh, and so students quickly catch on that, yes, it's what you put into it. And so, you know, if you just try and cram and read everything the night before uh, the exam, you're not going to get much out of it. It's going to be frustrating and, and not very useful to you. But if you actually take the time and do distributive learning, um, and I coax them with exercises and points and quizzes along the way, um, that's really when it starts to be really useful tools they can work with. And it's kind of corny, um, but it helps me to, to kind of be mission focused. I feel like education uh, and people who are in education and training, we're in the business of transforming lives. So we're giving people tools um, that help with upward mobility, help them be more successful in their personal lives, in their work lives. Um, and so it's something that I have a lot of passion for, and I'm always kind of trying something new um, because students are changing. And the examples that I used when I started um, they just don't work anymore. I can't use television and movie examples because we found that entertainment is so fractured that everybody is looking at different things. And so, you know, it's not that you could never do it, but you need to do something that you can describe in the classroom um, if people haven't seen it before. Whereas when I started, I could talk about a Simpsons cartoon and everybody in the room had seen that. And so it worked pretty well. So I think that's another part is evolving along the way. I do a lot of online teaching. And when I first started, um, it was almost 19 years ago, I had to create my own listserv, my own web page, and uh, on the orientation day, I had them come in in person on a Saturday, and then the rest of the class was online, and uh, I had two volunteers who would help me with setting up free email for everyone, because when I started, that wasn't necessarily the norm that everybody had that. Um, so to go from that, and nobody had taken an online class before, to all the infrastructure we have now. And when I ask students, you know, how many classes have you had before this one online? I have students who say 22, 24. Um, so it's, it's kind of keeping up with the times and evolving and knowing that what you did yesterday doesn't always work tomorrow. Um, but a lot of it does. So it's not like you're constantly reinventing the wheel. So it's probably a lot more than anyone wanted to hear about my approach to teaching, but um, I get pretty excited when I think about it. It's, it's I think a, a great opportunity that we have. Uh, if you're if you have the honor and the the access to be a teacher, I just think it's something that that can be very inspirational. And some days it can be very exasperating, but overall, I really enjoy the process. It's clear that you have a lot of passion for teaching, and as you tell your stories, it strikes me that you start to be as thoughtful with the uh, student experience as a teacher as you help organizations to be with their candidate and employee experience. So that's a that's a nice linkage. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I would if if you're one of my students, you wouldn't always say that I do that, but I try. Um, you know, I, I think <laughs> one of the core things that as as faculty, I think we can do is consistency. Um, and so that fairness line I really hold, um, and that's something that, that helps me deal with um, when people want, you know, things to be different than they are in terms of exams and scores and things. I'll tell you, I know we are, we are technically over our time here, but I'm wondering if we might be able to squeeze in one very quick wrap-up question with you, focusing on your role as PSYOP president. 
Um, you, you have an opportunity to shape the future direction of our field in this role. What do you view as some of the top challenges and opportunities for our field in the next five to ten years, and how can we start preparing for these now? Yeah, I, I don't think these will be surprising to anyone. What I came up with as a list, I think analytics and technology um, obviously is one. Um, I think a huge opportunity that we have as IO psychologists is our science practice paradigm and approach, and that we're so much stronger when we work together. Um, I think uh, something to really think about as a challenge is IO education, and we know that science and education are, are sometimes under attack or under threat, and so everything we can do to help make the lives easier of educators um, and help enhance that is great. I think SIOP will continue to thrive um, the more and more that we are able to partner with other organizations. With, when I think about, you know, kind of those multidisciplinary teams that we talked about for research and practice, I think SIOP can live into that, and that's a huge opportunity. Um, and then we've talked forever, and, you know, this series is one of those things. Um, visibility, we do a lot, but impact. Um, I think IO psychologists are really poised, and SIOP is really poised to help with this. But I've never been in a time when people are more hungry or excited to hear what we have to say uh, and to utilize the skills that we have. I think that the big challenge we have is to get the microphone um, loud enough that people understand what we do uh, and also what we don't do. So a lot of opportunities. I just came back last weekend from last weekend in the SIOP conference planning committee and executive board meeting. And I'm so excited. I love the venue. I had never been to National Harbor before at the Gaylord. We're going to have room. It has the word convention center in it, but it's just integrated into the hotel. So it feels like something big enough for us. And yet it's all under one roof. And um, just so people know, you want to fly into Reagan National uh, for the closest airport. It's about 15 to 20 minutes away, easy ride. And I am thrilled. Uh, Scott Tonnendandel is the conference um, chair, and the closing plenary speaker that he secured, Megan Smith, uh, is it, really, I'm so excited about her. Um, she was the chief data officer under Obama in the Obama administration, and she founded a company called Shift7, and if anybody has some time um, to look that up, they're using technology to solve big societal problems, and really inspirational, and I can't wait to hear her speak. And then obviously, all the things that we were talking about, the opportunities and trends, um, the big thing that SIOP does every year is the annual conference. Uh, I've been going since 1990, I think, um, and it has never disappointed. I've never had a conference where I thought I didn't learn anything, and that was no fun. So I hope to see everyone there. Fantastic. So folks want to be a part of helping to shape the, the future of I.O., the convening platform of the conference is where they need to be in April. Exactly. Excellent. Well, Talia, unfortunately, that is all of our time for today. As always on the series, we have certainly way more topics and way more gems of insights that we would love to get from you than we have time. Uh, on behalf of SIOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you for sharing your time and your perspective with us today. Listeners, thank you for joining today's discussion. We hope you'll join us on Wednesday, March 27th at 10.30 a.m. Central, 11.30 a.m. Eastern for a conversation with another great mind and pioneer in the world of IO practice, Bob Eichinger of Matrix Insights. And later this year, we'll visit with more IO influencers, including Anne-Marie Ryan, Nancy Tippins, Paul Sackett, and John Boudreau. We look forward to future conversations driven by you, our listeners. Until next time, take care.